0: So, I'm here today with John Judas to talk about his book, The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization. Thanks, Mr. Judas, for joining me. Uh,
1: my pleasure. You, you can even call me John. I'll call you
0: John. Um, so, John, what is this book about? What is the claim of the book?
1: Uh, the claim of the book is that um, nationalism uh, shouldn't just be identified with um Hitler and Mussolini, but that it's a a centuries-old phenomenon and it's based on uh, something called national identity, and that national identity is uh, both uh, positive and can be negative, and that um, it's, for instance, um, an essential ingredient of democracy and the welfare state, uh, as well as um, bigotry and prejudice. So uh, we have to take a much more open view of what nationalism is and what its function is. And that's really what the book is about.
0: Okay, so we'll get to the reason you're writing this book, I think. One reason you're writing this book is because nationalism seems to be more prominent than it used to be because it's associated to some degree with Donald Trump. We'll get to that in a second, but let's, let's let's flesh out what you just said. So why is nationalism central to democracy? Why is it central to the welfare right. state?
1: Well, what, what we're talking about is not really an ideology. You, know, you can get ideologies called nationalism, but a sentiment that people grow up with. Um, they celebrate Thanksgiving, recognize flags, uh, get worried if their country is uh, attacked. And what a democracy depends upon is uh, people believing that other people whom they may never know or see uh, have an equal right as themselves uh, to determine who are gonna be the uh, rulers of the land, the uh, le- legislature, the presidents, the prime, prime ministers. Uh, if they don't think that, then you start to get a breakdown of, of democracy. It's very, very similar with a welfare state. Uh, and I'm not talking about just conventional welfare as Amer- Americans might prefer. You know, aid to the handicapped, to the blind. Uh, when I pay my taxes, I am uh, spending money, my money, uh, to help somebody in, let's say, Reno, Nevada, that I will never see or know. But what I do know about them is that they're an American and I'm paying taxes as an American. And if I, again, don't have that sense of one nation and everybody together, then we start to get in trouble. And uh, well, you know, we're in a certain amount of trouble in both Europe and the United States on this question of one nation, and is it worth paying taxes for so-and-so, and should so-and-so have the vote as much as
0: so-and-so. So that's- So, uh, we're gonna talk about the downsides in a second, but can I just press you on this? Yeah. What, um, so you talk in the book at times, and and you just suggested that national, I understand better why nationalism is necessary, where a sense of national identity yeah. is necessary for to make the welfare state work. And that you have to have a sense of community for one people, one group of people to voluntarily and um, and happily give their resources to another group. There has to be some sense of community and I think yes. that's what you're talking about. Um, but you also said we're in trouble because of nationalism. It seems like a couple of questions. One, to what extent is national, nationalism and national identity defeasible, changeable? I mean, is it a necessary condition for democracy? Um, we've, I'm going to ask you a couple of things. Is it a necessary condition for democracy... And what happens? We're in an era where, indeed this is what your argument is, where nationalism is being called into question as something that's good, something that's desirable, and something that's persistent.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, this is, we're gonna get into some distinctions here. You have to have some common sense of a national identity for democracies to work. Now you know the obvious example is something like Spain, where they're having a crisis over Catalan independence, and uh, where the Catalonians don't think that they should have to be part of Spain. And you know, so that's they've had a secession crisis now for for years. If you have that, uh, you're in you're in a certain amount of trouble. Uh, So, in that sense, you have to have you have to have this common sense of national identity. Um, United States uh, immigration, illegal immigration, fears that people are taking advantage of the welfare state. When that becomes widespread, then it's very hard to pass uh, uh, legislation that will give various alleviate economic insecurity for everybody because people think, well, it's gonna the money's gonna go to people who really don't deserve it.
0: But so this is one of the things that puzzles me about your book because I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong. The Democrat Party, Democratic Party, is both um, less concerned than, say, the Republican Party, or maybe progressives are less concerned than conservatives about illegal immigration. I think something like that is fair to say, and also they are more concerned and more invested in the welfare state, and those seem that <laughs> seems like a tension to me on what I would call the left side in the United States. Is that fair or not?
1: Uh, it, it, it's fair and. Look, you, you go beyond this common sense of national identity to the existence of, well, let's say the next level would be politics and just politics being in the national interest. And you can knock out a piece of legislation if you can pretty well show that it's not in the national interest. So that's kind of everyday unconscious thinking about what, what we should do policy-wise. Then on the very next level, you get explicit nationalist politics. And this is where Nationalism becomes a kind of ideology, and it's a kind of us versus them contest, and that too can be on both the right, the left, and True. the center. Uh, Lincoln, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, but also uh, um, Hitler, Mussolini, George Wallace, Donald right. Trump. Right. Um, so, again, when you get to that level, you can have you can have people looking at what is in the national interest and what who the enemy is in very different ways. So you get the kind of paradox which you cited about the Democrats and the Republicans now.
0: So what is the state of nationalism in the United States today? I mean your book, I think it's fair to say, is I read it as a defense of the idea, not across the board. You talk quite explicitly about the downsides right. and how it can be abused. But your book is, in a way, a reminder that there's a good element of nationalism that's necessary, as you just said, for uh, democracy and for social welfare programs and other things. So what is the state of nationalism today? I would say that it's an idea that is, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, it's an idea that's generally under attack. That's why your book is interesting, uh, at least in certain circles. And also... Donald Trump has in some sense become the standard bearer and defend, defender of nationalism, and that is um, also in many circles not helpful to the idea. Yes,
1: that's, uh, that's, that's all right. And uh, the, you know, the United Kingdom is another good example of where nationalism really is, uh, has become a dividing line. And it's not that uh, the people who oppose Donald Trump, let's say, uh, don't share some sense of national identity. They're all people who, uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, you know, maybe there's 10 who aren't, but uh, who felt their heartstrings plucked and, you know, wanted to defend the United States. It's not that they're, they're not patriots in some sense, but that they construe nationalism different in terms of who, who's, who is and, and who's out of the circle. And they also, uh, uh, it's also a question of priorities. Uh, for somebody who lives in these small, mid sized towns uh, that used to be centers of industry, where the jobs have been stripped, where the, where the downtown has all moved to the suburbs, uh, churches disappeared, bars disappeared, uh, I, the possibilities for identity and for, for finding a way to think of yourself having a fate greater than yourself. Uh, you can put it immortality, are small, are smaller. So national identity becomes all that more important. Church, family, nation, those become central, and something like Colin Kaepernick kneeling uh, for the national anthem becomes incredibly offensive. People in the big metro centers have multiple and and very fluid identities. they might have gone to a fancy college, uh, and uh, see themselves alumni. They might belong to a prestigious law firm; they can identify with that. The way you know somebody from, let's say Mansfield, Ohio, uh, Sherrod Brown's old hometown, could have identified with Westinghouse. They were going to work there for life. Those possibilities don't don't exist anymore. So. It's not like you know, the, we're lacking a sense of nation, national identity, but for some people, it's much more important than others. And for some people, it's also understood in a different way. There's more, again, fear of immigrants, of the other. And that's, too, a, a function of these, again, the part of America that's been stripped of, it, of a lot of its other sources of identity, like lifetime employment, like neighborhoods. So that's what, um, I hope that's not too complicated. No, not at all.
0: But what, so, so I wanted to circle back to the question that I tried to ask you earlier, which is, you make it, I think it's, I think that there has been a diminution, and I think you document this, in um, either the coherence of a sense of national identity or in the scope of commitment to a national identity, call it nationalism, call it patriotism, call it what you like, the folks you just mentioned, the the elites or the elite educated okay. or the, fo- the folks that live in urban populations or you, the cosmopolitans, you sometimes I see where and, you're going. I just wanted so well. Go ahead. So, I, I, a couple of things. One, um, the nationalism you're describing seems like it's a nationalism for the people, the the ones that have been left behind by globalization. You talk about that a lot in the book, and the winners in globalization. This is a crude, reductive account of the book, but I think the winners in globalization are the ones, you have this distinction, I forget what it is, nowheres and everywheres, and that's not quite Somewheres yet. and anywheres. That comes somewheres from and David Goodhart. Yeah. Uh... Somewheres and anywheres. So, um, And the somewheres have are physically rooted, nationally rooted, and the anywheres are more cosmopolitan, tend to live in cities and the like. So, do the, do the latter category, do the, are they nationalists? Are they committed to nationalism in a sufficient way to Make possible the kind of to satisfy the prerequisites for democracy and social welfare and the like. Sure, they're 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 committed, but we have a, a
1: culture war going on in the country about about again about identity. Right. And so it's it's uh, you know it's it's become it's become difficult, and um, you know the what what I'd say too about it is that after World War Two. Partly as a result of the uh, bigoted uh, immigration quotas that were placed in the 20s. Partly as a result of uh, the Great Depression, which brought a lot of people together. And partly because of World War II, we had more of a sense of one America. And that's, that's, again, that's when the term melting pot, which comes from 1910 or so, really becomes popular as a description of America. You know, again, we had this excluded class, the African Americans, and we fight the uh, civil rights over that. But the old kind, of the conflicts we had before World War One about, you know, whether Hungarians or Jews or Polacks or Waps, et cetera, were really Americans disappeared. So what we're going through now, uh, and partly again as a result of the just the uh, surge of immigration after nineteen sixty five is a search for a common national identity. And we're in the middle of a conflict over it. Uh, it,
0: So how do we, so how do we, we are in the middle of a conflict over it. You have some prescriptions in the book for how we get it back. I'm pessimistic. So how do you, what do you think, uh, what are the paths to getting us on a better course on this front?
1: Well, you, you know, I, I always get asked, well, what would you do? And that's what I'm saying, what I, what I would do. But I'm as pessimistic as you are, because let's say one of the key things is what we do about immigration, and we've had repeated attempts over the last 20 years to do something. And you know, at a minimum, what it involves is, on the one hand, doing something about illegal immigration, integrating those. You know, now the estimates between eight million and 22 million. I don't know what the actual number, but Getting that underclass of people integrated into the United States, giving them some kind of path to citizenship. On the other hand, um, again, you know, uh, doing something about illegal immigration, which you can do with uh, an e-verify system with employers, but if you do that without giving the illegal immigrants some way. Uh, to gain work and citizenship legally, it'll just be a way of kicking people out of... The, I mean, it'll be it'll just work in, in a completely bigoted way. But so you, that's,
0: pre- you you that- present that proposal in the book as this is... We all know this is how we solve the immigration problem, but we can't get there because things are too divided over. Right. And, and we're, we're so splintered as a country that we can't reach even the consensus for... Well, they
1: can't... And look at the... You know, the Congress now, they're fighting over, what, the number of beds and the, and, uh, you know, the number, whether a wall's going to be in Big Bend National Park or El Paso or God knows where. I mean, we really, we are completely at, at, at wit's end in this. And I think, what, it was it 2007 and then 2013, there was comprehensive legislation that would have gone a long way towards resolving these kind of things you know, and and it just died in the House. So, uh, again, that's, I I think I see a solution.
0: But it's a solution, that was proposed as a solution to help um, strengthen, fortify the national identity, to help um, create more of a common bond over an issue that divides the country. Yes, and it would
1: take decades, too. I mean, it wouldn't be instant. And, you know, I think what you'd... What else you would have to do is you would have to tilt the immigration system itself towards, again, people who would more easily assimilate. So you don't get uh, clusters of people who are going to have trouble getting jobs and compete with the unskilled workers who are already here. So, you know, again, I think something like that would work. But you have the Republicans and, and Democrats at just uh,
0: sword's point over over these issues. Yes, indeed, so that's my point, is the solution, you have the Republicans and Democrats, the right and the left, at sword's point over right. this issue, and you're proposing as a solution something that's inconceivable because they're sword's point over the issue. So I don't understand, and indeed, the very idea of assimilation, which you just used, is a very controversial idea. It's an extremely controversial idea. Right. Tom Brokaw just got in trouble for, for mentioning the possibility. Right. So right. you can't even, in, in, in many ways, it's... Uh, in some ways, it's not. You're not even allowed to to mention that as a goal in the current right. polarized environment. So, I guess my question is: the solution, or some of the solutions in the book, seem to me to be unavailable given the very polarization that you're trying to resolve.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm not a, am not wasn't writing really a prescriptive book in that sense. Right. But people always say, well, what would you so do? Fair so fair enough. That's- so, so, this is an important so, thing.
0: So, the book is more is primarily an analysis of our situation. Yes,
1: yeah, and usually in America, what happens is it usually takes some kind of crisis, right. and that's how we resolve things. I mean, we can't can't seem to even get, you know, any kind of advanced social programs. I mean, it took the Great Depression really to get Social Security and all that kind of stuff. So um, we have trouble on that score, and it took maybe what forty years or so to. Uh, even longer, 40, 50, 60 years, for instance, somebody who was Jewish like myself to be seen as, a, you know, as an American. I, I quote in the book Harry Truman uh, writing his cousin from, in 1919 from uh, New York and complaining that the you know, it was something 750,000 Israeliish extraction, um, 100,000 wops. And, and uh, you know, the rest were white people. So, I mean, it even 1919, so it takes a long time in this and country. And
0: does, does history provide a guide for what the mechanisms are? You, you mentioned that a lot of groups that were seen as outsiders become included within the community over time. You mentioned crises as contexts that can help right. spur the community, like World War II, for example. Does history provide any guides for what might work in the future other than a terrible crisis? Uh,
1: in the United States, I, I don't uh, see them right now. I mean, the, the you know, in California, for instance, with this huge Democratic majority, they can do a lot of things that they couldn't do before in terms of, especially the tax, fixing the right. tax system. So you could foresee, and I thought this was going to happen with Obama when he had his majority after 2008, um, passing some of these kind of comprehensive legislation uh, but but it would take a, it would take super majorities in Congress it would take a, a big a big sweep and it might be over some issue that's completely incidental to the issues we're talking about like
0: the Iraq war was not you know incident. it would take both super majorities and compromise right I mean yes, yes. And those are rare those right. are rare things right lately right so let me shift just a little bit. One of the paradoxes of the book for me is that in explaining the idea of nationalism, you said that for a great majority of uh, the challenges that a country faces, public officials and citizens look primarily to what they think is in the nation's interest. And you talk about the national interest a lot in the book. Uh, But then you also document given the rise of globalization and the United States commitment to globalization going back decades and many different types of administration, that there were a series of moves that committed the United States to global trade and goods, global you know open borders and the like, that had the direct consequence of, of really disempowering and hollowing out many communities in the United States. That seems paradoxical to me because A lot of people said at the time that those were the direct consequences of this. The claim was that it wouldn't happen, there would be redistribution or the like, and that immigration would be better for all and the like. And so I'm just wondering how you square the ideas that the the leaders were acting in the national interest, but then there were these basically horrible consequences. At least
1: you're... I'm not saying the leaders were acting in the national interest, but that the standard of justification I is that you're acting in the national interest.
0: What is the national interest is what I'm asking.
1: Like I that... don't know. I mean, you have to judge it on any particular consequence. But, the, you know, just like in American foreign policy, people want to be able to say that, you know, we're making the world safe for democracy, but a lot of things we do uh, don't, don't uh, result in that at all. And in a lot of cases, what happens is it is a... Um, kind of resolution of different vectors between interest groups that, uh, whose interests aren't necessarily in the national interest right. of. So yeah. you know, again, you had certain uh, groups in the United States pu- pu- pushing for a kind of, kind of precipitous entry of China into the World Trade Organization. It's under circumstances that uh, w- w- was going to have a dire effect on a lot of manufacturing right. communities in the United States. But they said, well, it's going to be in the national interest because we're going to, you know, it'll actually in- improve things. Now, whether they thought that or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But they had to make that kind of argument in order for it to be acceptable.
0: Right. So I completely agree. Yeah. Indeed. I completely agree that the that major policy initiatives, whether it's an international initiative or a domestic in, uh, initiative is justifying the national interest and criticized as not being in the national interest. I guess my point was, that's not a very meaningful concept. I mean, it, it is, your point maybe is you're appealing to something and that something is what you think is important and worth preserving. Is that right? right? It's Rather not, than it's it not being, a,
1: it's not, it's not a, I, I'm not offering a, a practical guide to which policies, but Just trying again to explain the underlying assumptions by which we live uh, and uh, why, you know, again, a slogan, Make America Great Again makes sense, things like that. Yeah. So
0: this is the next question I had, which is that why, so you talk in the book about populism in the United States and also populism, uh, nationalism, I'm sorry, in the United States and also in in Europe and relatedly populism. Um, and so I think you have an account for this, but I'd like for you to flesh it out. Why has the populist nationalist movement gone in a right-wing direction rather than a left-wing direction? I mean, there were, it's, it's a little bit surprising. I mean, I think there's some good explanations for it, but it's a little bit surprising.
1: I think a lot of it has to do with Im- the fusion of the uh, f- fear of immigrants with the fear of terrorism. And the way that came about after 2001 and uh, and September 11th, and again, the beginning of a whole spate of terrorist attacks in Europe, uh, made that the, the key overriding issue. And that's that was an issue that
0: tilted more to the right than the left. But why? Uh, than why? The left. Because why was that an issue that the right had a natural advantage over the left on? Because of the security angle? Uh,
1: security exclu- exclusionary uh, angle. Um, Again, historically, the left has been based upon um, uh, majorities from the bottom and the middle. And what those issues did, what the immigration issue did, was allow uh, a right wing to split that
0: group. But I guess this is what I'm asking. So, again, I'm sort of out of my league here, so help me. But you're right, the left is usually concerned with the bottom and the middle. That's the traditional assumption. Right. And, but you're also saying that the left was more interested in um, generous immigration, which can be seen and turned out to be a threat to the local bottom and middle, or at least it was perceived that way. I think you think it was, in fact. And so why why did this happen? Why did the left, and it seems to have happened not just in the United States, but elsewhere, why did they make that choice?
1: Well, I, I think the United States and Europe somewhat differently on that score. Okay. United States, the labor movement was—you want to word, use the word restrictionist—until uh, uh, early the early exactly. 21st century. Right. And um, the biggest thing that happened was the uh, uh, SEIU uh, union mm-hmm. uh, changed its position, and they figured uh, uh, that they were best off just accepting that there was going to be illegal immigration and try to organize, because um, that's that—that that was a lot of the people they were trying trying to organize. And the Democrats themselves uh, started to think, well, this is the way we're gonna eventually have this huge uh, minority, uh, majority in these states, and uh, we don't wanna do anything to offend uh, these voters, even though um, after the first generation, pretty much Hispanics uh, and Asians have the same view of uh, immigration, I mean, there's, they're as critical of illegal immigration as anybody else. So. But I think that was that a mistake. Right? But, but that, sorry, but that was, was the What exactly was
0: the mistake? I'm sorry.
1: Assuming that there, that there was going to be some political advantage right. by not, uh, not, not emphasizing the importance of doing something about illegal immigration. Right. That's the, uh, that, and doing something in terms of uh, borders, uh, things like that. You still that.
0: think that, do you think that's a continuing mistake?
1: Oh, it was a a mistake in 2016. If you looked at Hillary Clinton's uh, platform, it was, uh, you know, you'd have to have a microscope to find her uh, saying anything about uh, trying to strengthen our borders or limit illegal immigration.
0: But that, if anything, if I'm reading the papers correctly, the the Democrats are moving even more in that direction. Is that right? They might be. Is that a mistake? I'm not
1: sure. I, I don't think that's true of all the Democrats or all the candidates, but uh, th- proposals like abolishing ICE, I think, are, 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 are yes, they're, they're a mistake. The, I mean, the, y- reforming ICE is fine. That's, that makes a lot of sense, uh, uh, just like reforming a lot of police departments in the country. But, um, you know, having an agency that looks out for uh, t- terrorists and so on is not, uh, is not something we
0: want to eliminate right okay um, I want to turn to Donald Trump okay one of the so is it fair to say that would you have written this book if Trump weren't elected in 2016 do you think
1: well the question is whether I would have gotten a contract for right the book okay I mean I wrote the populism book uh, in uh, early 2016 and you know the that's that's when Trump was first coming up, and the, and I believed then that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And after the election, I called my publisher, uh, my, the editor, Nick Lemon, and I said, well, Nick, the bad news is that Trump is going to be the president. The good news <laughs> is that people are going to read my book. Right, right. That's good. <laughs> so the answer so to my question is
0: you probably wouldn't have gotten a contract. Yes, we're... correct. Yeah. So you um, compared to most writings I read about Donald Trump, you are actually somewhat more sympathetic to at least his concerns, if not his execution. You say, in his foreign policy, Trump rejected tactics and strategies, institutions and alliances that had grown out of the global excesses and misbegotten optimism of the 1990s and early 2000s. In his own brutal way, Trump asked some of the right questions. Are Americans really committed to going to war over Estonia, as NATO's Article 5 would require? Have countries like Germany taken advantage of the United States by failing to meet their defense obligations, allowing them to spend their savings on social needs, while the United States has had to spend its tax dollars on armies? You talk about the WTO, you talk about a reset with Putin, whether globalization has done well for America, whether our China policy has worked. So I think you're sympathetic, you can tell me if I'm wrong, to Trump's I don't even wanna call it a critique because I'm not sure how coherent it is, but let's call it that, a critique. And even if you're not sympathetic to his reactions to what he critiqued, is that fair?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, Trump in his own uh, bullheaded way, asked a lot of the right questions. I don't think he gave the right answers necessarily, but uh, things that, that uh, just were not, you absolutely could not ask in Washington, like what's the
0: point of NATO after the end of the Cold War? Right? I mean, you know... It's a great question. Some (laughs) scholars are asking that question, but I agree. It's just a verboten topic in Washington. Why was... I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but why was Donald Trump, of all people, able to ask these questions that his party wasn't really asking a lot of these? He put it on the agenda, and he won because of it, and I think he beat Hillary Clinton because he put these issues on the agenda and seemed to care about them. Why was this non-politician, not terribly informed person why was he the one to do this why weren't why wasn't it happening happening within the normal marketplace of the parties well
1: it, it wasn't happening in the normal marketplace part of the, because they were so locked into this kind of washington establishment i mean when, when trump was running and he was proposing that there be tariffs on china until they you know do what we want which still not clear exactly what we want um, I remember the Peterson Institute put out this thing saying that if you follow Trump's advice, there's going to be a, a global c- crash in two years. You know, I mean, we're right. past it already. Right.
0: So there well, was a lot of terrible uh, things were going to happen if yeah. you follow Trump's advice that haven't happened yet.
1: Yes, exactly. So, so they're really uh, the fact that he was coming from outside politics. I think is the, is is key to a lot of it and. Um, you know, he had a kind of a funny, intuitive grasp of both Main Street and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, go, going back to the uh, even the Hollywood Access ta- uh, tape, what guys talk a- complain about in a locker room. Well, you know, why are we in Afghanistan? You know, blah blah blah. All these kind of questions that were. Uh, that uh, were stirring around, but that were just, could not be asked. Uh, but isn't
0: that, it's, it's really a remarkable thing, because you have a long list of questions, good questions, I agree, that Trump asked, he put on the agenda, and almost, you know, he had a sense for this, but so I, there's one puzzle about why Trump was able to grasp these issues, and, and all of these issues right. that mattered to the American people, but didn't matter to the politicians, but what explains this, and there's been a lot of talk about the blob in foreign policy, uh, circles. Ben Rose referred to the blob as the foreign policy establishment that was bipartisan and had one view that Obama tried to fight and didn't really win that fight very much. Um, they're, they're see- so why did this happen? Why, why isn't the political system working to allow these... Why did they take a Donald Trump to put these ideas on the agenda? These successful ideas. At least successful questions.
1: Well... I, I think that that, again, you have to go look at the other issues entirely, like immigration. Because uh, Donald Trump doesn't necessarily get his votes because of uh, his position on, on NATO uh, or even on the Iraq War. right? right. He holds those positions. But there, there were certain kind of very critical issues that he grasped. That other people did grasp in the Republican Party, but that he grasped very clearly and that he wrote Road to Victory. And the two I would say were China trade, China NAFTA trade, right. and, and immigration.
0: And those were the issues. The other issue, you know, he I thought when he started criticizing the Iraq War the Republican debates, and when he started talking about the wall and a whole bunch of those issues, well, especially the the, the war when he started liking Bush, I thought that's going to sink him in the Republican Party, and it didn't. It didn't hurt him at all. It may have helped him.
1: I, but, I thought everything was going to sink him. I thought yeah. when he got into that the battle with uh, Megyn Kelly over, or the McCain stuff, I, it it was an amazing election in that respect. I you know.
0: Yeah. Well, that that takes us a little bit off the book. Let me ask you um, just a couple more questions. Uh, you draw a distinction between um, you draw a distinction between globalism and internationalism, which I want to talk about, but also. You kind of draw a distinction about the pre-Trump consensus being one of uh, of a social contract approach to international relations and international institutions. And Trump's, what you call, his more Hobbesian view, which I think you think is transactional, bilateral, narrowly focused on the national interest. Is that a fair... Yeah. Okay. So, I'm just skeptical of the distinction. I mean, going back to your point, every president's and every administration's efforts on the international stage are thought to be serving the national interest and are, in that sense, narrowly Hobbesian, I think. I mean, it would be very hard for a president to do things internationally that he couldn't, that didn't serve the national interest and that he couldn't claim serve the national interest. Sure, but, okay, go ahead. uh, But but presidents have argued that we should,
1: to some degree, cede our our decision-making powers to international bodies because the result would be in our national interest. So NATO, uh, so the Paris Climate Accord, uh, so the United Nations, those were all things that you know, we argued were in the national interest, but that involved to some extent giving international bodies some kind of say over the final result. So you know, uh, I, I think what distinguishes uh, Trump is, a, is a, just a rejection of that uh, in, uh, approach in toto. And, uh, you know, America going it alone uh, on, uh, obviously, on climate. Climate's, incidentally, a good example of where he asked the wrong question, you know, when it's cold in uh, Minnesota. Doesn't that mean (laughs) this this is the intuitive man in the street acting like an idiot? Uh, But, uh, you know, these kind of—Trump rejects all those kind of things. I mean, I think that they would— Know, under some circumstances he would be pulling out of the United Nations or you know sending it all the whole thing back to Geneva so he really doesn't believe in that kind
0: of internationalism uh, yeah so fair enough I mean I would just qualify that by saying that the vast majority of multilateral institutions that govern our everyday lives there are thousands and thousands of them that most people haven't heard of he hasn't touched those he had, those are still flourishing and we're still, you know, he, the, he has a limited attention yeah, span. Yeah, and, and I mean, he goes after the big He's playing golf and stuff, and he's not right. going to be able to. The major institutions, he's, yeah. he's, he, he's attacked NATO, he's attacked the United Nations, he's pulled out of the Iran deal, he's pulled out of the Paris Agreement, he has pulled out of a couple of human rights uh, institutions. So he's putting a guy in the World Bank and IMF who's kind yeah. of s- skeptical. And so you see this as, but I wouldn't call it, I don't, I don't see why. Maybe this is just nomenclature. I don't see why that's and I think he has a different conception of the national interest, and I agree that he's suspicious, deeply suspicious of international institutions. But that's not, that's not terribly new. The George W. Bush administration, in which I served, was very skeptical of international institutions. It designed the International Criminal Court. It pulled out of. Uh, many, listen, I'm many not, I'm not
1: disagreeing with that at all. Yeah.
0: That was one of my uh,
1: criticisms of the George W. Bush right. administration. I think it's a, it, it's a continuation of that skepticism. Yeah. The real difference is the rejection of a kind of ne- neo-conservative uh, evangelical view of, of America's purpose in the world, that we could go you know, change the mm-hmm. Middle East in, in our image and things like that. So that's the, that's the difference uh, between... Uh, his view in the bushes but you know they the coalition of the willing was what us and Britain and Spain and a few stragglers maybe the Philippines and stuff I mean so they it was there is
0: a lot of continuity there okay fair enough what um so this book was published five months ago or so what has happened since you published this in late August early September that has caused you to change your mind or deepen your beliefs been, how would you explain the last five or six months in light of the claims of the book anything changed for you well
1: the, the you know the big thing in the united states is the 2018 election and uh, the repudiation of trump and uh, i i don't in an odd way that has to do with nationalism it has to do with the fact that um, you know in america we don't have an emperor and a prime minister, but the this, the uh, two positions are combined. Right, and uh, I think a lot of the, Trump's problems are that he is uh, that uh, people uh, really are disappointed with the way he's conducted himself personally as the president, and uh, I think that's why I think that's again that's what that's why he's had a lot of trouble in the suburbs with uh, college-educated voters. Um, they're offended by him. It doesn't necessarily have to do with his, you know, what he says about China or anything. Or his policies, uh, it, it has to do with with, with him. And um, I had expected when I did the book that um, that he would t- turn after the election more and uh, become uh, more presidential. I think, you know, I think a lot of Republicans expected that.
0: they also too. expected that after he won the nomination and after he won the presidency, and it didn't happen either time there.
1: Yes, no, I know, I know.
0: I don't think he has it in him.
1: I, I don't think so either, and uh, I think it's going to be his undoing. I think that uh, that a different version of Trump, you know, he had, what, 3.8% unemployment in uh, in 2018? You know, they they might have lost a few seats, but 40 seats? Right. Oh, my God.
0: Although he did keep the Senate, although there were very favorable conditions for him. Yes,
1: that, that, that was completely Food. hedged yeah. in order to, you know...
0: So, last question, how, um, so I'm, as I say, I come away from the book seeing this concept of national identity being, um, and you're not the only person to propose, Francis Fukuyama's book, recent book on identity, ends by saying the way we overcome identity politics, he's focused on a somewhat different issue, but the way we overcome identity politics is to reconstitute our identity as a nation. And that's not, I think, unlike what you were proposing as a solution, but... I'm I, I'm skeptical that we're anywhere close to figuring out how to do that. Do you well,
1: know? yeah, that th- this goes back again to what I said about the this from the Civil War until uh, nineteen forty-five or so. It takes a long time, and uh, it takes a great degree of assimilation uh, for that to happen. Uh, intermarriage, you're already seeing that, and uh, I. You know, some of the political scientists talk about America as an idea. You know, this a democracy and stuff. But I think that that is uh, that actually isn't the way we've operated, and that uh, people have an image of their mind of what it, what an American is, and
0: uh, there's a there isn't now a common image. So uh, this reminds me of one more question I wanted to ask you. You say in the book, and you, you explain why that. I think you're somewhat more worried about this problem in Europe because you say that Europe's history does not prepare it to deal with questions of assimilation raised by decades of migration, whereas I think, I think it's implicit that you think the United States has the potential to reconstitute this national identity through, over time, through... I hope, I mean, yeah. I
1: hope, but the Europeans really, you, you know, uh, even... Uh, in Germany it took like 45 years for them to really accept the idea that the after World War II that there were people who were uh, not of German uh, ethnicity who could be Germans so it's, uh, it, it's much more jarring there um, in, in Denmark you know this enormously prosperous country it's just a very small percentage of, uh, of uh, Muslim immigrants and I don't think they've even had uh, terrorist attacks I'm not sure about that but uh, you know, it's just uh, they have the People's Party there gets twenty two percent of the vote or something like that. So yeah, again, it's more difficult. Sweden is another example. So the, the, the assimilation problem there is difficult. And, and um, I was in I, I lived in Berlin for three months during the uh, George W. Bush administration, the build up to the war, and people would always just go go at me, you know, with you know the. The, the climate change, and we're they're pre- preparing for war, and you know you're this awful country, and it's say, like, yeah, but you know, look, we can assimilate our immigrants. You can't do it, so you know that's always been our strength. But it's, and I hope it still is. And you can see that happening with with Asians and Hispanics now. It's just that it's we're still in the middle of it. Great, thank you very much.
0: Sure. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Tower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.